For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Weekend Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A Michigan woman suffered numerous puncture wounds after being attacked by a white-tailed buck last month. She survived, but the wounds to her hip right leg and left hand required 21 stitches. That deer was out to fight, she told the Oregonian. It was trying to kill me. It wasn't trying to be nice to me. That's for sure. It's a very dangerous deer. And you, ma'am, are one tough cookie. If you look up images of the deer online, you'll see it was a young buck with a spike on one side and three points on the other. It's also wearing an orange collar. Michigan wildlife officials believe that collar could be the key to explaining the deer's behavior. Here's what happened. On Sunday, September 26th, 64-year-old Patty Willis was walking out to her chicken coop when she turned and saw a deer charging at her, antlers down. Fortunately for Willis, she noticed the deer before it struck, so she was able to prepare for the attack. She told the Oregonian that the deer hit her in the chest She flew back 10 feet, and she managed to grab the deer by the antlers. Again, my goodness, lady, you are tough. Imagine if she would have turned and ran, and the deer got her in the back. She screamed as it pinned her to the ground, and her son ran outside and chased the deer away. Her husband shot at the deer with his handgun, and he believes he missed. They rushed Willis to the hospital. She stayed there for three days before returning home. When the Michigan Department of Natural Resources heard about the incident, they pretty quickly developed a theory about how this deer lost its fear of humans. In June of 2020, DNR officials received a complaint about a family at a nearby residence who had taken in a fawn. They were treating it, quote, almost as if it was a pet. 
DNR District Law Supervisor Lieutenant Brandon Keefe told the Oregonian another neighbor about a mile from the attack reported a deer in their backyard in September of this year, and DNR officials believe the original pet deer lost its fear of humans and has been hanging around the neighborhood. Now, to be fair, DNR officials can't say for sure whether the deer in this incident is the same deer that was adopted by the nearby family. Keeft said the family had complied with the DNR when informed that adopting wildlife is illegal in Michigan. And DNR biologists released it into the wild. When officials asked the family whether they had outfitted their deer with an orange collar, they told officials that their son had, quote, developed a bond with their adopted deer, and they couldn't say whether he had given it a collar. Further complicating matters is the fact that, according to Keeft, deer lovers sometimes put collars on whitetail with the hope of protecting them from hunters. If hunters see a deer with a collar, the thinking goes, they'll take a pass, whether because they think it's illegal or because they don't want to take a deer that's already been captured. I don't think this practice is very common, considering how difficult it can be to capture a deer, but the Michigan DNR said this theory might also explain the recent attack. If you ask me, it doesn't really matter whether the buck got its orange collar from a nearby family or a nearby animal rights activist. Most people have an understandable desire to protect wildlife. But, ironically, improper actions such as this have the opposite effect. Acclimating wildlife to humans puts them in danger, whether you're talking about a large predator like a grizzly bear or a seemingly safe animal like a whitetail. Their fear of people keeps them out of trouble. When humans and wildlife mix, wildlife almost never come out on top, unless you're talking specifically about the attack portion of this story. Even though Willis suffered serious injuries during her encounter, the offending deer won't be given a second chance if DNR officials catch up to it. Keefe told me that they aren't sure whether Willis's husband hit the deer with his handgun. If they find it, it will be euthanized. Keefe didn't say exactly how, but my money is on buckshot. I understood that reference. This week, we've got what the hell is going on in Wisconsin, the migrator desk, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was, you know, crane marsala, crane leg cone fee both of which I neglected to tell you about last week, but it's very appropriate this week, and you'll soon find out why. Crane marsala, right? Like, very, very simple. Take your crane breast, cut it against the grain, and like two and a half inch thick stakes. Pound that stuff flat, throw just a tiny bit, a dusting, if you will, of flour, salt, and pepper. I like to let it rest. You do that on both sides. And then you slide that into, you can use butter or a high heat oil. And all you're looking to do is kind of like brown those things. Leave them raw in the middle, as raw as you can, as long as they're well browned on both sides. Set that off to the side. Then, this is not the traditional Marsala way, but I like to throw in a little bit of garlic, a little tab of butter. And then when that stuff starts to get too brown, you put in your Marsala wine. The trick to Marsala is very, very simple, okay? Just get something good in the wine department. Don't get like the cooking wine stuff because it also just, you know, tastes like burned alcohol. Get good marsala, dump that in there, scrape your pan. You can use a whisk if you want to get fancy. Then you take your nice little brown fillets, slide them into the same pan, get that sauce on there, take it off the heat, 
and that stuff will warm up to a perfect medium rare, and everybody's happy. Crane Marsala, kids. It is a delight. The scent he would do quite nicely in any, any, um, any restaurant. Now, the most underutilized portion of game birds is the legs. In fact, here in my home state of Montana, the Department of Wildlife just did a shameful act, which is not even categorize migratory bird legs as food. It's true. Look at the regulations. Now, everyone listening to this show is, you know, a conservationist, a true sportsman or sportswoman or sportsperson. On top of that, you know, you're just not a waster, okay? And you can recognize good-looking meat when you see it. It is absolutely true as well that birds that do a lot of walking on tall, stilt-like legs have legs that you can use to pound in tent stakes, all right? Now, I've often used that turn of phrase for, like, bear shanks, okay? Animals that dig for a living. The crane may be the match to an old black bear shank. It is more tendon than meat at first glance. However, the old, old trick of simmering something in pork fat works unbelievably well for crane legs. Now, there's a traditional method and a non-traditional method. I like a non-traditional method because it's just like way easier to deal with the fat. So all you do, sous vide, you got your vacuum seal bags, you got pork fat, and you got salt. That's it. Slide your legs into the bag. Be very, you know, conscious of broken bones and make sure you don't puncture your bag. Put your pork fat in there. I like to liquefy it first, which is just heating fat up, right? Then it turns into a liquid. Dump that in to where you're sure that when you seal that bag, the fat will fully cover the meat. I also pre-salt the legs, just so you know. And that's it. And then I just put that in the sous vide bath at 153 degrees for 24 hours, all right? And then when you pull that stuff out, you can drain the fat off if you want, or you can pour just a little tiny bit in the pan, shred your meat, all those tendons come out, and they are still like wire, like a veritable fortress around the meat, and then you crisp that meat up under the broiler, and it is just a sinful, good meal. You will never throw a crane leg away again, It is absolutely worth taking. If you want to argue with me on this point, write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeteor.com. On top of that, every high high has a low low. And as you know, the old uh, snort dog, Snorticus and I, have been riding a pretty high high as far as locating and shooting birds. Well, uh, we're in a bit of a dry spell. Reality has come home to roost. We've done a lot of walking not a lot of trigger pulling and there's even been a couple of misses in there i think it's mental moving on we got one listener email in regards to some cooking that i did on my instagram account but bear with me this is going to be pertinent okay the listener wrote in and said i would trade a testicle for that sandwich. This is in regards to some corned goose Rubens that I made the other night. I'm very, very proud of this corned goose because this is the only batch that I've made that tastes exactly like corned beef. 
I think there was like a little bit too much curing salt in there. Like after you eat the sandwich, a little salt aftertaste. If anybody in the butchering game knows what I'm talking about, let me know. I'd still be interested in some more scientific ratios. Anyway, unbelievably good corn goose. I'm salivating at the thought of getting more geese. And this person wants to trade a testicle for a corned goose sandwich, which normally I would say no to. But we are in the midst of the meat eater auction house of oddities. Okay? We take in all sorts of strange stuff and auction it off only at TheMeatEater.com. Okay, just go to TheMeatEater.com, check out the auction house of oddities. You can find all sorts of outdoor-related, hunting-related, fishing-related cool things, from puppies to bones to furs to paintings to sketches. Things that'll fancy up your cabin, possibly your love life. It'll keep your face from getting any uglier, just in time. Every dollar spent there, every single dollar spent, will go to the Meat Eater Land Access Initiative. You remember that's where we provide more access to people who love to hunt and fish. People who love to be outside. It's a great way to spend a buck and get something memorable. Moving on to the wildfire desk. A few weeks back, I explained how wildfires don't usually pose a population level threat to wildlife. Most critters can either escape or hide from a fire, and most fires don't decimate habitat to the point that it can't rebound in the spring. Well, there's some exceptions to every rule in nature, and today I'm going to cover one of them or an aspect of one of them. A new study published in the journal Ecology found that wildfires in the western U.S. significantly impede waterfowl flying along the Pacific Flyway. This delay can double migration time and forces birds to find more food in unfamiliar areas. In the worst-case scenario, birds die along the way or can't reproduce quickly enough to maintain populations. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, of course, wildfires produce tons of smoke, and that smoke must harm birds that travel along well-established migration corridors. The study's findings make intuitive sense, but, as the authors point out, setting a wildfire and releasing a few geese won't exactly fly with the general public. Without any way to create a controlled experiment, biologists before this year have had to guess how wildfires affect migration patterns. Fortunately, the authors of this paper had attached GPS collars to tool greater white-fronted geese all the way back in 2018. That previous data showed them how the geese migrated without wildfires along their route, and four GPS collars were still transmitting this year. This fortunate coincidence provided hard data on how geese respond to wildfires. In previous years, the birds took a well-established route between the Cook Inlet in Alaska and Summer Lake in Oregon. This year, three of the birds had to hunker down on the Pacific Ocean for 52 to 72 hours before the smoke cleared. When the birds began moving inland and encountered smoke, they tried to fly over it or had to make stopovers in non-traditional habitat. One poor goose seems to have gotten lost. He got through the heart of the fire, but continued following prevailing winds within the smoke plume until he found himself in Idaho, where a tool goose occurrence has never been confirmed. Until now, of course. He eventually made it back to Summer Lake, but like the rest of the four geese, he doubled his migration time. Instead of the usual four-day excursion, the geese took a nine-day journey that added 470 miles to the flight path. Maybe this doesn't seem that profound to you, 
but take into consideration that on a, quote, normal migration, birds die. The act of migration is extremely taxing. Dr. John Colucci of Ducks Unlimited notes that an average-sized female hen mallard will burn 1.8 million calories during a normal 1,500-mile migration from Saskatchewan to Louisiana. Migratory birds have an incredible ability to pack on fat fuel quick when they land and feed. But if you consider the case of our collared geese, where the migration was prolonged by almost 500 miles, or if you compared it to the mallard, 600,000 calories, you can see why this is a major concern. The authors of the migration smoke study ran the numbers, and they estimate that the geese needed between 28 and 42 additional hours of foraging to compensate for the extra calories they burned thanks to all the smoke. Finding that additional chow is complicated by the fact that these geese had to stop in areas they'd never visited before. If you've ever tried to find a decent hamburger in a town you've never been to, you know what I'm talking about. You're going to burn some fuel, driving around town, scoping places out. But a bad hamburger is only a minor annoyance. For the Thule goose, it's a bigger deal. There are only about 15,000 individuals in the entire subspecies, and California has listed them as a species of special concern. The authors of this study point out that birds like the Thule goose have a super-specific migration pattern, and if they're forced to change that pattern, it could increase the probability that their population declines even more. Studies have shown that female geese that arrive malnourished or late to the nesting grounds will likely not be able to lay eggs or possibly even survive the egg-laying process. All the more reason to help out and enhance habitat in your neck of the woods you never know who may drop by. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it 
you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Next up on the Migration Corridor, as you know, I recently went after sandhill cranes for the first time. Having a bird with a six and a half foot wingspan glide into your spread is an experience you don't soon forget, and I am now a big, big fan. That's why a recent bill aiming to introduce a sandhill crane season in Wisconsin caught my eye. Or maybe it was because Ted Nugent, aka Teddy Nuggets, aka The Nuge, aka The Motor City Madman, was on the docket of speakers at the hearing. That tends to move a news item up in the algorithm, especially in that part of the world. Here I come again now, baby. A few Sandhill Crane facts. After being nearly extirpated across the country by the 1930s, American Sandhill Cranes have made an amazing comeback with the help of conservationists. There are now an estimated 500,000 of them who make the long migration from Mexico all the way up to Siberia and back every year, flying up to 400 miles a day. They follow the same four flyways that other migratory birds like ducks and geese use, and their populations are now so healthy that all the states in the central flyway, which are the plain states from Texas to Montana, have a sandhill crane season. Except for Nebraska. Nebraska is a key stopover point in the migration. A full 80% of North American cranes use a 75-mile stretch of the state's Platte River during their spring migration. In fact, the name Sandhill Crane comes from Nebraska's Sandhills area, which borders this stopover zone. The call of the Sandhill Crane is especially cool, sort of a rooster crossed with a playing card in the spokes of your bike, if any kids do that anymore. Phil, hit us with a crane call, please. Cranes are able to make this unique sound because their tracheas, or windpipes, are coiled into their sternum or breastbone, and air forced through the coil structure causes that deep staccato. Phil, maybe one more crane noise. Maybe make this one the sound of cranes in love. I've heard people say that too much of anything I don't know about that. And speaking of cranes in love, cranes know how to literally shake a tail feather on the dance floor. In pairs, they bob their heads, sweep their wings in and out, and sort of prance around. I'm not recommending that you try this at the club, but it can't look any goofier than what you're currently doing. Cranes dance more frequently during mating season, but they also do it year-round. So ornithologists speculate it creates group cohesion and just maybe a bird version of fun. As we mentioned before, the birds have likely existed in their present anatomical form for almost two and a half million years. 
although Leopold said of them, quote, they live not in the constricted present, but in the wider reaches of time. A crane marsh holds a paleontological patent of nobility, one in the March of Aeons. That Aldo. So hot right now. He always could turn a phrase. Anyway, a sandhill crane season in Wisconsin would be a great thing. First of all, bird hunters would get some fantastic table fare. You've heard me talk about it. You've no doubt heard the crane's nickname, Ribeye of the Sky. Next, controlling crane numbers would give the state's farmers a break. Cranes do a number on corn crops when they come through in the spring, eating newly planted seeds. You can treat seed with a chemical deterrent, but that's expensive, time-consuming, and not always effective. Three other states in the Mississippi Flyway already have a crane season, Kentucky, Alabama, and Tennessee, so adding Wisconsin would make sense. However, cranes reproduce in Wisconsin. They only pass through those other states, and so the opposition to the hunt has centered around not interfering with reproduction. However, with the species now thriving, the science is clearly on the side of opening Wisconsin season. Keep in mind, hunters, we hunt a lot of things when they're trying to reproduce, right? We know we can do this and maintain and more than likely increase the population. Here's kind of where this crane thing gets interesting. And it's back, of course, to the Nuge and his role as frontman for Hunter Nation based out of Kansas. Hunter Nation has brought a lot of attention and momentum to this hunt, which I'm like, hey, right on, Nuge. On the other hand, I do question the approach. First, the out-of-state group, Hunter Nation, didn't coordinate with any of the Wisconsin-based conservation orgs that have spent years building support for a crane hunt. We spoke with Tony Blattler of the Wisconsin Conservation Congress, a group of in-state hunters that advises the Department of Natural Resources. We were very appreciative of Tony's time on the phone as he'd just come in from grouse hunting in nearby Chequamauga Nicolette National Forest. Remember, A-S-K-C-A-L at TheMeatEater.com. Blattler says that the WCC and several other groups have worked with legislators since the mid-2000s to establish a sandhill crane season, first introducing a bill in 2011. As crane numbers have continued to grow, all parties involved have been optimistic that a bill would pass this session. Blattler emphasizes that cranes are already killed under depredation permits to protect farmers' crops. But without a sanctioned season, those dead birds have to be incinerated. A terrible waste that people all across the ideological spectrum want to avoid. Do you need more of a reason to allow a crane hunt? Wasting a crane is unfathomable to me. Again, darned tasty bird. And no coincidence that I already hit this, and it's our overarching theme. After years of careful effort to build the necessary support, Blattler was frustrated that Hunter Nation had come in suddenly with guns a-blazing. He worried that introducing bills so quickly can lead to mistakes in the legislation, and he said, quote, There were people who were aligned with us and who are on our team to implement the hunt, and this event made it hard for them to be on the team. You will recall that Hunter Nation sued the state of Wisconsin last February on the grounds that not allowing a wolf hunt was violating a previous state law signed in 2012, stating that wolf hunts are mandatory in the state of Wisconsin as long as wolves are not federally listed as an endangered species. 
that legal action has turned into a great example of when charging ahead may not be as good as crawling. Although February's wolf hunt will likely not hurt the Wisconsin wolf population in the long run, it did hurt wolf hunters, hunters in general, and the reputation of the State Department of Natural Resources when nearly double the quota set for wolves were turned in. In short, it was a public relations disaster. The wolf hunt was forced through, and in regards to all the things wildlife managers talk about, science, management, trust, control, it looked sloppy. Some outlets even called it bloodthirsty. And, as everyone feared, a Wisconsin judge just ruled that the November wolf hunt is, uh, off. Alright, listen to this, the devil's in the details, so pay attention. Dane County Circuit Court Judge Jacob Frost ruled the way the DNR applied Wisconsin's wolf hunt law is unconstitutional. In his ruling, Frost said he's not overruling the state's wolf hunt law and thinks it can be lawfully applied. In fact, he is ordering the DNR to set the new wolf hunt quota to zero for the time being. So, technically there is a hunt, it's just that there are no wolves allowed to be taken during the hunt. In quote, the DNR needs to stop it. They need to actually comply with the law. They need to regulate the hunt. They need to develop a wolf management plan. They need to implement the rules so they can regulate the hunt. They need to be part of that oversight process that keeps the law constitutional, Judge Frost said. So with that recent court ruling in mind, the next tactic of Hunter Nation also becomes more questionable. The Crane Bill was introduced amongst 12 other bills in a package, one of which would legalize concealed carry of a handgun without a permit. Now, no matter how ardent a defender of Second Amendment rights you might be, you can also see how the bundling of a crane hunting bill, along with the political hot potato of permitless concealed carry, could make you question how serious they are about just hunting cranes. In regards to a crane hunting season, it's important to note that there is currently bipartisan support of the hunt itself. That means both sides of the aisle. Another odd offshoot of this political soup in Wisconsin is that Hunter Nation has also supported Fred Prane, who is technically the previous chair of the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board, to refuse to resign once his successor was named by the incoming Democratic governor. Prane's position is that if he resigns, the board will be, by majority, Democrat instead of by majority, Republican. Which, if you're advising the natural resources of the state, you should be independent, in my mind, independently biased for wildlife and hunting and fishing. Now, I will say one tactic Hunter Nation uses that I can appreciate is that they treat every local attack on hunting as an attack on hunters everywhere. That all-for-one, one-for-all approach is part of why the Second Amendment movement has been so successful. You know, sometimes Idaho trout anglers don't exactly rush to the defense of Florida bear hunters who are at risk of losing their hunt, just as all gun owners don't write in or call their state representative in favor of crane hunts. I'm just kind of running all this past you, because historically the biggest conservation wins, and when I say historically, you got to remember like last administration, have happened 
by focusing on the issue at hand and creating as big a tent as possible to protect, acquire, enhance wildlife and habitat. We have held our own against committed anti-hunters by bringing sympathetic non-hunters and those who might vote against us on other issues to our side on behalf of wildlife and wild places. This approach to conservation has proven successful, but I do admit it takes a long time. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. Also, if you're in need of a ton of firewood for deer camp, clean shooting lanes, or a powerful leaf blower to blow the leaves and all the rest of that Halloween costume stuff off your lawn, go to www.steeldealers.com and find a local, knowledgeable, fantastic steel dealer near you, I promise you they will get you set up with what you need, the best tools on the market to get the job done efficiently. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.